Pushkin. Few songs hit quite like this. Green Onions was recorded in two takes in 1962 by Booker T and the MGs. They were the house band for Stax Records in Memphis. This song was originally the B-side, but once it started making the rounds on radio, it was quickly re-released as the A-side, going down as one of the most recognizable instrumentals ever. Booker T, along with guitarist Steve Cropper, drummer Al Jackson Jr., and bassist Louis Steinberg, or depending on the year, Donald Duck Dunn, went on to record hits like Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Hold On I'm Coming, and Soul Man, and in the process defined the sound of Southern Soul, which was way more gritty than the polished sound coming out of Motown. Over the last 60 years, Booker T has been writing, producing, arranging, and playing with some of your favorite artists, like Otis Redding, Neil Young, Willie Nelson, Bill Withers, and of course has been sampled in hip-hop like a James Brown drummer, songs by The Roots, Wu-Tang Clan, and others. He wrote about it in his memoir, Time is Tight, My Life Note by Note. Booker T sat with Bruce Hedlum in front of a Hammond C3 organ so he could talk and play us through his career. This is Broken Records Season 3, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum speaking with Booker T from Bridge Studio in Brooklyn. I do want to start today talking about your new book, yeah. Time is Tight, yeah. which is fabulous for many, many reasons, and I think everyone should read. Thank you. What interested me particularly was, you know, there's this perception people have of, I think particularly Southern musicians, soul musicians, that you guys learned everything in the church mm-hmm. or singing on street corners. Mm-hmm. You were a serious music academic. You studied mm-hmm. very hard from an early age. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. did that, why did that happen? Well, I think uh, your first two elements of the formula are exactly correct. Uh, the church, I was. I remember singing uh, Jesus Loves Me as a little boy in Sunday school, and my first solo was in church. And then as I grew up a little earlier, some of my friends, I met Maurice White in sixth grade and uh, David Porter in ninth grade, and they were singing in doo-wop groups on the street corner. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came from a background where my grandfather built a school down in Holly Springs, Mississippi, and he mandated that his children go to school, first his school, and then that they go to high school and that they go to college. So all his kids, including my father, went father graduated uh, MI and became a math teacher and he wanted all his grandkids to do the same thing so I was one of those so mm-hmm. it was predetermined that I was going to study and uh, and go to college and I, I saved up $900 on my paper route to that effect and studied Latin in the ninth grade so you know and the music was uh, came from my mother's side uh, the classical music my, my grandmother was a piano teacher she had a piano taught my mother my mother played Litz W.C. Chopin in the house, uh, and that that music affected me. So I got it from a lot of different angles, including those first ones you mentioned. When did you realize you were studying music? You started, I think, with a clarinet. The clarinet was the first one I owned. The first one I started with was oboe, the first uh, formal instrument. Mm-hmm. But before that, I, as a little boy, I had a ukulele. Oh, okay. That got me into guitar, so kind of, I kind of see myself as a guitar player. You see yourself as a guitar player yeah, even I pick, now? I pick it up first, usually when I'm writing a song. When did you know music was going to be your life? As a young boy, I started hearing music in my mind uh, since I can remember various uh, sounds and melodies, and, and I didn't know what to call them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that, I think, was the challenge as I grew older, what to call everything. So that's where, where the formal education came in you know, taking piano lessons, organ lessons, theory lessons in high school. I had to put a name to everything, you know, so I could communicate Mm -hmm. with the outside world, you know. Yeah. And these are, you know, this is pre-integration your school. You went to an all-black school. Went to an African-American school, uh uh, sang in the the, uh, 
choir in the first grade at, at uh, Porter Junior High School, which was no all, all blacks, no whites. Uh-huh. And you, but the music education was really intense, and you took theory lessons after school. Mm-hmm. That was in ninth, 10th grade, starting mm-hmm. in about 1959, mm-hmm, Right, And then uh, there's this amazing passage in your book where you are, as is, Years later, you're working at Stax. Mm-hmm. I think you're doing the arrangement for uh, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, the great Sam and Dave song. And I think the next thing that happens is you're trying to figure out, you're, you're at college at that point in Indiana, mm-hmm. you're trying mm-hmm. to figure out what you're going to play for your trombone recital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, those were coincid- coincidental. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you were flying back and forth to yeah. do Stax sessions from, and you were getting an education at one of the great music colleges in the country. I think you mentioned a great instance. I'll play, you know. Something wrong with my baby. That's a great, you know, uh, combination of a church feeling, you know, the mm-hmm. way that the way the notes move in the bass and the uh, and the, the, the classical uh, combination of those influences in my life. But the church, I think, was the main, the strongest influence in my musical uh, makeup. One of the other influences you mentioned, and this is fascinating to me, and I'd love you to walk me through it, mm-hmm. was when you wrote Green Onions. Mm-hmm. And I think you were probably 19 or something. You, I was 17. 17. Mm-hmm. But you said it's because you'd studied Bach counterpoint. Yeah. I wanted to go to UCLA or Indiana University. So I had to pass a theory. I had to pass a, a, a jury to go to Indiana University. Mm-hmm. They were going to ask questions about the basics of music. How was music put together? Well, that's where my theory class started, you know, the scale, 12 mm-hmm. notes in the scale. And what are they? The third? And what are the, the chord changes? Those, the way I moved those notes were, uh, were basically uh, dictated by J.S. Bach contrapuntal movement you know mm-hmm. it makes sense we didn't think about it but it, it's 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 ingrained in our western society what i just played that's the way the notes move other countries you know, whatever different scales you know. yeah so in in figuring that out i i um this this what if a note went that's where the blues came in Changing this from a major third to a minor third. Mm-hmm. That that third one, two, three. What about the minor three? So that's where Green Onions came from. Instead of, and I thought, what if the the third was a minor? And what if the top moved down like a box? Because Bach and counterpoint, the top, the, exactly, the, it, it moves. It the, moves in the opposite direction exactly. of the base. The bottom, the bottom moves up. I mean, the, the bottom moves up while the top moves down. Wow! So I kind of played that on the piano. I thought that sounds kind of cool, you know. And then the changes, of course, were just regular blues changes that we played all the time. You go from that to the B flat. And then back to the one. So it's a 12 bar blues, basically. But it has this for its second chord instead of. I think it would feel different if I played it like that. So that's yeah. basically the history of how Green Onions came about. And was there a particular Bach song that inspired that, or just it was just general no, theory? No, just contrapuntal rules, just the rules that we learned, you know, and in, 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 uh, that's the major scale. Um, and I want to go back to your education and more about Memphis, mm-hmm. but there's one other great example you mentioned in the book. There's many great examples, mm-hmm. but you wrote the great Albert King song, Born Under a Bad Sign, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you said you picked a particular key for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know where that came from. That, you know, that that door opened, though. We got a call, we being myself and my partner, William Bell, that uh, we were we were staff producers at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were responsible for recording Albert King. And he was coming down the next day. So we went into my den the, uh, the night before, Friday night, to write something for him. And uh, that came into my mind. And, and uh, William had been working on the, the lyrics content, Born Under a Bad Sign. He had been working on that for himself. So the two came together that night before. 
But then, you know, at Indiana, I had learned about, you know, the, the urgency that you could put into uh, certain keys that, that were, were not inherent in, in some keys. Uh, music is a, hmm, how do you say it? Music, 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 music is part of our, of our atmosphere. And some, some, some keys have more emotional content for, uh, than others. So I went to C flat minor for Albert, you know, a D flat, D flat minor, same key. Mm-hmm. So that's oh, what that's a, a C sharp, yeah, yeah. C so, sharp minor. So yeah. this this is different. That's Albert's key, yeah. And, and the way he played his guitar, so he pulled his strings, you know, in those keys, and, and we got this tension, you know, and this mm-hmm. this emotional necessity uh, out of this song, and it just makes it just playing it right here now it makes you feel kind of differently. It's like something ominous is 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 you know. And you in, think in that, there. and that came from the key. In that part? came from that came from going from here to here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so that's, and you mentioned that C. You liked C sharp. Wagner. Which, uh-huh. Wagner. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Chopin. You know they were in, they played in those keys. They didn't mind writing six sharps. You know they they made the musicians play in those keys, and mm-hmm. but, but it had this this uh, this feeling. You know this emotion. You know, and and the blues in that key is just unbelievable. You know, to me. But it's it's not a common it's not a common key for for blues, though. Well, I don't know. Uh, it it was perfect for this and for Albert. Uh, I think a lot of blues musicians when I was on on in Memphis played in in the in the simpler keys. You know, F and, and maybe C or G minor. But but when you go to the minor keys like that, the, the A flat, uh, 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 G sharp minor. There's a certain, there's another element that comes in. It's, I guess it's the way the universe is put together, the makeup of the atoms or something. <laughs> it has some, it is, so there's, it's more, more emphatic. Yeah. And so, so Born Under Bad Signs in C-sharp minor. Wow. The same way as Chopin's uh, concertos. And, uh-huh. and it was very great, good key for Albert. He just killed it. Now, he was a guitar player, so it's a little easier to move. And he's, he's also a right-handed guitar player, uh, kind of like Jimi Hendrix. So it, it wasn't such an issue. You know, left-handed guitar players have to push the strings, but a right-handed guitar player like Albert can pull the strings. So he had more, oh. more strength, more physical strength over there right? on the, on the upper strings. So he just he just killed it. It was, it was, it was a great experience. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I want to go back to, we, we talked about sort of your academic background, but then you started playing uh, along Beale Street. Mm-hmm. Now people now know Beale Street because of the of the Baldwin book, and mm-hmm. uh, they just made it into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this famous street in Memphis where mm-hmm. you're from. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what it was like playing in those clubs back then? You were just a kid. Yeah, I was right off of Beale Street on Hernando, just about a couple of doors down um, um, at the Flamingo Room upstairs on the second floor. Was where I, I they, they were the only ones that actually let me in. Cliff Miller uh, was the only owner of the place, and he, it was his place, so he brought me in. And uh, I couldn't get into the club Handy, uh, uh, which was uh, on the other side of Bill. That was uh, Sunbeam Mitchell's club. I was too young, and uh, he, I guess, he, I guess he could have broken the rules and had me in. But um, but Cliff was the one that was interested in me. He brought me in to play bass, and I played bass in uh, Gene Bolex Miller's band, and and uh, Willie Mitchell's band. Mm-hmm. How how long had you played the bass at that point? I picked up the string bass uh, in at Booker Washington Junior High School. They had a bass, and I played mm-hmm. some bass in, in the combo there. Yeah. By the mm-hmm. way, this is probably a good time to pause and say, your name really is Booker T. My you- name is my name is Booker T. Jones. I was named after my father, Booker T. Jones Sr., who was named after Booker T. Washington, who mm-hmm. was an educator and uh, built uh, built a college, uh, Tuskegee. Or was it Tuskegee? Uh-huh. In, yeah. In the South. Mm-hmm. And you attended Booker T. Washington High School. Booker T. Washington High School. Yes, yeah. I did. Uh-huh. Okay. So while you so you were playing in these clubs, were they rough clubs? Was it was yes. it strange for a kid to be in there? Yes, it was unsafe. Uh, and I mean, there was a lot going on on Beale Street. You know, Beale Street was everything from you know uh, uh, prostitution and out whiskey running, and <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of stuff going on down there. My parents. But my parents picked out a, a couple of musicians they trusted to watch over me. They picked out uh, Floyd Newman to take me home at night and take mm-hmm. me over to the club. He hated it. But he, <laughs> my dad had been his algebra teacher, but he did it anyway. <laughs> so your dad had been his algebra teacher. You had to listen to your dad. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. But your, your dad is, uh, you know, 
He's a high school teacher. Yeah. He's always in a white shirt and tie. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, yeah. He, and he thinks it's okay for you to play at these clubs? Well, you know, my dad appreciated, my dad supported my musical passion. And mm-hmm. if I wanted to do it, he he sat out he sat out in side of so many clubs out in the countryside while I played, and he just supported and bought me the instruments, and he was my benefactor, you know. Mm-hmm. Is there there may be a picture in the book of him in his algebra class with his white shirt and tie on his and his pointer, you know, teaching kids to to uh, to calculate. Yeah, he seems mm-hmm. like just an amazing character. He was. I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't be here without him. I mean, he bought the first clarinet and uh, he just he just, you know, took me and put Maurice White's drums in the back of his car and Frank Easley's bass, fit all that stuff in his car and took us to the clubs and mm-hmm. yeah. I, he I may be so the, he may be the nicest algebra teacher who ever lived. <laughs> he was. Thinking. He was great. A lot of people loved him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at 16 you started it wasn't called Stacks then, it was called Satellite, but you did your first session. Yeah, I was 15. I was in 10th grade, and uh, the guy Floyd Newman I was telling you about was their baritone sax player, but he was mm-hmm. also a high school teacher, so he couldn't make this particular session because he was in school. And David Porter came and got me out of school, my algebra class, uh, 10th grade algebra class, to play for Rufus and Carla Thomas, mm-hmm. played baritone sax on their Cause I Love You, their first record at Stax. And... Uh, yeah, that's, and that's got a lot of baritone sax. That record it does. I played that, through the whole song. <laughs> well, yeah. how many takes did you do? Oh, I don't know. That was a pretty. Uh, we didn't take too much time to record that. That was like close to being a first take, I think, something like that. And then, did you get more sessions after that? I it's, did. I did. I took the opportunity to tell him that I could play piano because you know it was it was Floyd Newman's job to play saxophone over right. there, baritone sax. I couldn't take his yeah. job. I like I like how you cut school <laughs> to, to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah He's they, a teacher. He can't cut. He can't cut class. You can. Yeah. So I was there, and I told him I could play piano, and I got the job working uh, after school as a session player. Right. After that, when they found out I could play piano. Do you remember some of your other early sessions? Yeah, the, the first one I remember was Prince Conley. Uh, Oh my goodness! What was that song? Yeah, it was a great blues song. I'm coming home. I'm going home. Mm-hmm. By Prince Conley. Yeah, yeah, that was the first, and I played the organ solo on that one. That was a blues song. Mm-hmm. Now you you are sitting in front of a a B three Hammond B three, mm-hmm. and we've got the speaker in the other room. Well, I think this is a C three. This is a C three because okay. it's got the wooden sides over here. Okay. Now mm-hmm. I was I was just told. The C three was the church version. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the, so that you couldn't see you couldn't see the organist's legs. Yeah. Underneath. Oh, really? Is that why? Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh-huh. Yeah. It looks uh-huh. it's heavier. It looks better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you you talk a lot about the B three or the C three Hammond mm-hmm. that it could make any sound you imagined. Mm-hmm. What What did you mean by that? Well. You have drawbars you can pull out and mix the tones. Mm-hmm. And I don't know of any other instrument that you can do that on. You can get that. As I, I don't, can't think of any other instrument that you can change like that. You can't do that with the oboe. You can't do it. Maybe guitarists can do it, but I don't know if they can do it as quickly. Right. As In the middle what of the you song. just heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess that was that was about five different sounds there from from one note there. Mm-hmm. Was there one particular sound that grabbed you or was it the variety that got you? The variety, I mean, that's what my teacher told me. When I when I saw the thing, her name was Mrs. Cole and I tried to get the lessons on and she said, you know, you can make any sound you want with this instrument. You can make it sound like a, a big full orchestra or, or a clarinet or, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was what she told me. It was the, the opening up of those possibilities, I think, that sucked me in. And uh, was she? Did she teach you gospel style, or did she teach you? No, she started with this. Her, her, my first lesson with her. Was... Well-tempered clavier. Yes. Bob. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If he lived long enough, he might have written Green Onions. He would have. Uh, he was an inspired <laughs> dude, man. <laughs> we'll be back with more of our conversation with Booker T after the break. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with more from Booker T. When did you start arranging and writing at Stax? That started with um, working on David Porter and Isaac Hayes' song. Uh, Sam and Dave's songs, Otis Redding songs. They gave me the freedom to uh, change their songs around the way I heard them. Uh, I worked on Baby. Uh, they had written it a different way, and I gave it kind of a Motown feel. I changed the bass line. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they let me change uh, when something is wrong with my baby, uh, and uh, some of the well, when we were working on try a little tenderness. Otis gave me the freedom to work with the mm-hmm. the bass parts and the chordal chordal changes in that, and yeah. they were all open to my changes. Can you show me what you did on a song like um, uh, you mentioned Carla Thomas' "Baby," mm-hmm. which was a song she didn't like, and then you finally made it work? What yeah. did you do? I gave it a, a little Motown feel like that. Mm-hmm. I changed the bass line and I changed the tempo and the melody. But and the melody is the same as they wrote. The words, they wrote the words and lyrics the same as, as they mm-hmm. wrote. Did you change any of the chords underneath? No, no. It's the same chords they wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just the way it feels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, were you guys, I mean, Stax was this incredible factory of hits. Were you competitive with Motown? Were you looking at what they were doing and saying, we're going to beat them? Not at all. I think we were, uh, we used Motown as, as, as an instructive element mm-hmm. because they were so great, so knowledgeable. They made so many good, good uh, decisions with their music and it was so, so much fun to listen to. But we, we were, uh, we didn't consider ourselves in competition because we were so different. You know, we were simplistic, we talked about um, not not making the music too complicated and keeping it accessible, you know, with the, the um, bass lines and the, and the drum beats. So uh, it, to me, it wasn't uh, competitive at all. I don't think we, we could have competed with them, really. Can you yeah. tell me about meeting Otis Redding for the first time? Yeah, Otis was... Um, um, uh, an humble guy. He was, you know, he was really excited about making music all the time. He was willing to do everything, carry the instruments and go get the food. And he was the driver for Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. And first time I met him, he was out on the street loading the suitcases onto the sidewalk. You know, do you need anything? And, uh, you know, can I, what can I do? And then can I sing a song? Mm-hmm. No, he, no, he can't sing a song. Well, let me sing a song. <laughs> you never had song. somebody, uh, a roadie, <laughs> wanting to sing before? Yeah, no, Rodis didn't do that, and we let him sing, and then he wasn't a roadie anymore after he sang the first two lines of These Arms of Mine. He was sitting right here next to me, and of course, then by that time, we wanted to get the tape roll and record this guy. <laughs> so did he say play this chord, or did he just start singing his own? No, it was all intuitive. Uh, he didn't He didn't, He didn't. didn't mention any chords, but he started right in on key, you know, so either he had perfect pitch or, or something, but he... I didn't have to play any notes for him before he started. He knew exactly what key to sing in. Mm-hmm. And it was his song. So uh, he was just an instant. I don't know, maybe he was the easiest in that way, actually. 
Mm-hmm. And then, but you, you added a lot of different things to his songs. As time grew on, uh, he would look over. He would he would look over to to me, and he dictated a lot with his mouth. He would hum, you know, then he would sing, you know, fa 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 fa. He would sing the lines to the horns. But a lot of the intricate stuff that I did underneath, he allowed me to do, you know. Uh, well, you just mentioned uh, the sad song, fa 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 fa. That song, uh, I can't sing it, but you just sang a little bit of it, and that's a song you would a beautiful accompanying to. But a better example would be. You want to be free. So, you know, the walk up to that, those those are the freedoms that, that I had to with him was to 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 um to insert musical elements to help the build the, the uh, uh, and he would wait for things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he he was he was dictatorial, but he also gave a lot of freedoms with the music. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just gonna wait for a minute for the hair on the back of my neck to go back down because that <laughs> was just so fantastic. Yeah, uh, and then there was so much the way you describe it. Uh, he was in San Francisco for a while, and he wrote "Dock in the Bay," and then mm-hmm. there was so much excitement around what became his last album. Mm-hmm. Um, just the making of it, you sort of, you describe the place being almost kind of in a, not a frenzy, but almost a kind of. It was a state of siege, to be honest with you. Uh, he he sneaked it on us. Uh, um, we knew that Steve had kind of prepared us. Steve was kind of the foreman at Stax. He was the, the A&R guy. And he told us we were going to be recording some new sessions with Otis, but we didn't know they were going to be nonstop sessions. And we didn't know that they were going to be song after song after song, and and that it would you know include not going home and staying in the studio and ordering food. And we never did that before. That was mm-hmm. the only time we ever did that. Stayed in the studio day after day after day. And I think it it culminated with that song um, sitting on dock of the bay. But there were so many great ones, and it just went one one to the other. So yeah, so there was a there was a a, 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 a mental attitude of that maybe Otis had a, a premonition that he needed to, to record those songs immediately mm-hmm. without any, you know, any delay of, of taking a night off or a day off or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you played piano on I Doc did. I, I played piano on most, almost everything uh, mm-hmm. during, that, during those sessions. Mm-hmm. And was Try Little Tenderness part of those sessions as well, or was that earlier? No, that was earlier. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because that arrangement, I mean, it's an old song. Mm-hmm. Uh, is so unusual. Even now, when you hear it, it's sort of disarming. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what? How did you put that song together? That was a, a trip that I made down from Indiana to play on that. The, the my contribution was to um, to uh, raise the keys uh, rather than playing it in one key. So it moves up during the course of the song. That's what it was. It was a walk-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the kind of theory type of thing. It was this part here. Yeah. And this part here was Al and Otis. That that was when Otis was looking at Al Jackson. Al Jackson made these stomps. Right. Got lots of Yeah, I think this was one of his kind of foot-stomping masterpieces that he came up with and sang the lines to the horns and mm-hmm. and um, dic- and uh, had this interaction this with Al Jackson Jr., the drummer. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. when you were arranging, were you writing out charts for the horns, or was it more was it easy was it more informal than that? This one was informal. This one was a head chart. I didn't put anything on paper. Uh, I don't think we had strings on this song, mm-hmm. but when we had strings and uh, we we could always tell the horn players to play by ear and just hum the lines to them. But where we had strings and we had to, had to write it down. Yeah, string mm-hmm. players can't do that, let's mm-hmm. face it. Yeah, well, they can, some can, but, but usually I would just, you know, write a chart for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, uh, a sort of incredible scene in your book uh, at Otis Redding's funeral mm-hmm. 
when um, you were supposed to perform, mm-hmm. and you couldn't. Yeah, that was tough. That was tough. Um, I was there in this big auditorium for Otis Redding's funeral in Macon, Georgia, and oh, it was a song that I'd played in church a thousand times, and um, I, I think I had brought the music just in case I got in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think, who was it? Joe Simon was going to sing. And I heard uh, the children walked in, and then the widow walked in, and I just, I just, uh, my professionalism left me. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a song, uh, Near the Cross? Near the Cross. I played that so many times. Near, near the cross, there's a... what I was supposed to play. I couldn't think of that to save my life. Well, you just played it for him, so that's... But I couldn't think of it at his funeral. I just, yeah, yeah, you know. Did you finally get it out, or...? I think I I finally got the music out, I had to, and put, and actually had to put it on the, Mm -hmm. on the organ and played it, and and, uh, once I saw the notes on the page, and I I remembered it. Um, Wow. Now, uh, I want to talk just about a, a couple of the songs you did. You did a lot of those songs as mm-hmm. Booker T and the MGs, mm-hmm. but Soul Dressing was one of them. Mm-hmm. How did that come up? That was, that was a, I would call that an Indiana song. I, I drove so many hours, so many hours down Highway 37 from Indiana. That's me driving down, looking around at the houses, the farmhouses. That was what was going through my mind when I was driving, mm-hmm. always. And that's when a lot of the melodies came to me when I was driving, uh, you know, north and south on Highway 37 through Kentucky and Indiana, northern Tennessee. The scenes, you know, the the pastoral scenes, Mm -hmm. and those kind of peaceful scenes. Would you pull over and write them down, or no? I just try to remember it. Mm -hmm. Just try to remember it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, I want to ask about. Slim Jenkins joint. Mm. That was New York City. I, I, I came up with that in Memphis on piano. I think I ended up playing piano on it. And... The, the story about that song, it seems like every song has a story. But when you mentioned that, I we, we were trying to record that song uh, in New York, and um, it was at Atlantic Studios on where we're on. And um, Cream had, I guess it was Cream had just become a big act there. And uh, I just, if somebody, you know, if we were working in here right now and someone came in uh, and sat there and, and I was coming up with something new, it would just totally distract me. I'd lose my concentration. So I would say, if anybody else in the studio that's not actually working on the record would you just please, you know, just step outside or just don't be here now? Because I got distracted. We're working on this song. Got the track down and everything. Time came to put the organ in. And this fellow comes in. And he just he just walks in. No, nobody says. And he sits down, like right over here by the wall, and crosses his legs and doesn't look at me. He just sits there. And I'm supposed to do the organ part, right? I'm totally distracted. All I can do is look at this guy. And, uh, I, and I found out it was Eric Clapton. <laughs> And he he basically owned the place at that point. I, I, I walked over to Tom Dowd. I said, you know, this fellow, fellow right, there, right there. Oh, it's just Eric. You know, just don't, don't mind. It's just Eric. It wasn't a big deal to Tom. 
they they weren't distracted at all. Uh, oh, your engineer was Tom Dow. Yeah, Tom. Great, uh-huh, great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he says, "I was just, you know, just go." And so I walked back out there, and I played that, but I swear I could not get my mind off. Who the hell is this sitting in here like mm-hmm. that? And I asked him a few years later when we were down in Texas. And I, I came to play there. Eric Clapton. He had a a, a, a guitar festival down in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Was that you?" Yeah, that was me. He just he just wanted to check out the session. Well, people did that normally, you know. Right. Other people did that. They had other people come in and sit in there. But I was always so private and so I don't know, so focused. It it, it kind of distracted me to have somebody, mm-hmm. unless they were working on the music. Anyway, there's another great scene uh, in your book where. Uh, you play the Monterey mm. Pop Festival. Is that in the book? Do I talk about that? On yeah. The book? Oh, that where did. where you um, you know you guys you're there with Otis Redding. Yeah. You're wearing. I'm not sure they were matching suits, but you're wearing beautiful suits and you're yeah. incredibly professional. And you go back to your hotel and there's just like hippies hanging around everywhere. Yeah. You're like, yeah. what the? Who are these people? Well, we stuck out like a sore thumb. It was amazing. But it became this legendary performance. It was. It yeah. was. Uh-huh. Yeah. We wish we had some other clothes because it was. We had these suits made at Lansky Brothers, you know. In Memphis, everybody went there because that's where Elvis had his stuff done. Mm-hmm. And they were great. They they could get you suited up quickly, and, yeah. and they, they they made nice stuff. Yeah, but, but you but green. you looked like algebra teachers compared to everybody. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. They were they were green silk suits, you know, uh, conservative suits, and that's what we wore on stage. That's what we thought we were supposed to wear. Al Al Jackson, you know, that was his idea, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, you know, in Memphis in the time, you were – the MGs were sort of held up. I don't know if they were held up at the time, but they are now as an integrated band. There weren't many integrated bands in the country. Mm-hmm. And you were probably the most famous mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, were you conscious of what was going on in Memphis at the time before, for example, Martin Luther King – uh, came and he was killed there, but uh, for the garbage men strike, was that stuff? Not so much conscious of, of the fact that we were integrated. That was that was a a, a subtext. Uh, it was not important. Uh, you didn't we, think much of it. Didn't think much of it uh, that the bass player was white and the guitar player was white. It was not a big deal. Um, but you know, like I said, we were family, so we were close. You know. Um, and if, uh, it was kind of a big surprise to me later when I would, you know, do interviews, and that would be the first question that people would ask. Well, my God, they're more interested in in our difference in races than they are in the in the music. Mm-hmm. You know, I would get questions like that from overseas. But no, we we were aware, of course, that we were of different races, but it was not a pervasive uh, issue. Uh, we we liked the way those guys played, and 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 they were they were we were together. They were part of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we were part of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it became an issue after Martin Luther King was killed, and Steve Cropper it became a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Said some things mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. seemed to blame Martin Luther King for stirring things up in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? <clears throat> At different times, it was of uh, different difficulties. Uh, later years, it was more difficult than it was at the time. Mm-hmm. I was unaware that um, in 1968, there was a very pervasive, multi-headed octahedron working in Memphis against exactly what we were doing. There was a huge uh, establishment that was uh, dedicated to separate people like us and not have what was going on at that. 926 Macklemore going on. Um, there were there were people in Memphis who didn't want um, uh, freedom riders to come into town and work towards that, and, and but uh, I, I was unaware of it at the time, which was a good thing, I think, because you know it would I think it would have hindered the music making mm-hmm. had I been aware of how strong the opposition was to races working together. When we come back, we'll pick back up with Booker T and more on the complications of playing soul music in the South. We're back with more of Bruce's conversation with Booker T. Uh, there's an incredible scene in your book mm-hmm. when you decide you're going to leave mm-hmm. Stax, which at mm-hmm. that point is run by Al Bell. Mm-hmm. And you write a song and play it for him. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me that story? Yeah. 
Um, I think, you know, I w- it was the beginning of my trying to uh, increase my awareness in general and kind of realizing um, that I could uh, maybe think on a different level. And I became aware of this huge, I'll have to call it a monster, a multi-headed monster that was moving about Memphis, where I was, that was uh, effectively um, dictating to two races of people, dictating to whites, dictating to blacks. And it was, it was uh, undetectable to, to most people. But I think I became aware of this, and I wrote the song about it. And uh, called Old Man Trouble, mm-hmm. about uh, defeating this unknown force that you couldn't see and doing it in your own mind and, and, get, and getting your mind free. Do you remember any of the song now? Yeah, there's a man called Trouble. And he follows me everywhere I go. Now, Old Man Trouble, you can't get me now, I know. So yeah, it was a song that I, I, I did and I spent a lot of money on it, did a big horn arrangement, string section, Al Jackson. Ronnie Compone and those those guys were. It actually got Stephen Stills recorded a few few years later on one of his solo albums. Mm-hmm. So you played this for Al Bell, and Al Bell mm-hmm. was African American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he had become the president. He was the leader of the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was reminiscent uh, for me of Sam Cooke's "A Change Is Gonna Come." You know, it was 1968. You could feel it in the air in 1968. You know, the um, it was a pivotal year for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And but this this was this was a real thing. This was a dynasty that was at work in Memphis. It was a it was an oppressive force that that was that was working then there, and, mm-hmm. but it was not up at the surface, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he 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 didn't have a good reaction to the song. It upset him. He had the same reaction I think that he would have. He I think he even mentioned Sam Cooke's song. He was the president of a of a of a record company that was about to really break open and uh and it had to make its statement uh, the the company eventually did make the statement as uh as a voice of, of black america but uh he wanted to be he he wanted to be i think a little more gradual than the song would have dictated mm-hmm. um and uh it was an interracial company at the time you know it wasn't just a black america a black record company i think he was I think, as I said in the book, I think we had the same goal. You know, Al actually had been part of uh, Dr. King's team at one point. We had the same goal, but I think we were taking different directions toward it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then after you played it for him, mm-hmm. you went back into the studio. Yeah. Um, and can you tell me what you did? Yeah, uh, we didn't We didn't make a deal that night, uh, which is what I had wanted. I, had, I went to his house looking for a deal. And um, it became apparent, I looked at his face, we weren't going to make a deal. I, I realized that it was just time. It was time to, to go. So I, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, sever all my links with the company. So I, I walked into the control room and I, I, you know, I erased um, anything new that I had uh, done at that point. Including that song? Including that song, yeah. And you couldn't, what was it, you, you had to tape over it. You couldn't reverse the tape, right? No, and I'm sort of glad I did because like, they had the freedom. They owned all the masters and they could put out anything they wanted after I left. So if I was going to make any decisions, it had to be that night. And so, yes, I put I, I erased multiple multiple machines by pressing the record button. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you- then just went home and packed and went to California. It's it's like a scene from a novel, just these machines running, and you're and you just leave. It's incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and and I'm glad I did. It turned out they put out many outtakes of the MG stuff that we weren't finished with, that we hadn't even named. And I heard stuff like, "Well, we're not finished with that one." And they they, they other companies bought the masters from Stacks. A fantasy bought mm-hmm. Stacks, and then they just put out what they wanted to, without permission. They owned it. So if you know if you're leaving a record company, you gotta you can't leave anything there. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you went to California. Yeah, um, you didn't have a lot of money. Didn't have a lot of money because you didn't. I can't remember what you were making at that point at Stacks, like one hundred twenty-five a week or something. Well, my first deal with Herb Alpert was more than I had made in in, uh, uh, in Memphis in a year. Yeah, mm-hmm. my first yeah uh, deal mm-hmm. with him. Yeah, they gave me they made me very comfortable. Mm-hmm. But you you describe yourself as almost being a little at sea after after your time at Stax, trying to figure out what was next. Mm-hmm. But then you almost immediately discover 
Bill Withers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that story. It was another almost uh, two years before um, Bill was brought to me. Um, I got a phone call from Clarence Avan, a friend of Al Bell's. Uh, Clarence had sold stacks for Al Bell. He had sold mm-hmm. stacks to Paramount. And so um, Al was uh, crazy about Clarence Avan. It was Clarence this, Clarence that for a long time. We kept our relationship, although I didn't stay there. And uh, Clarence called, and he was very excited about this guy in Inglewood uh, that was building airplane toilets. And he was a carpenter, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to listen to his songs. He described him as a songwriter. And um, Bill came out to my ranch in Malibu with, uh, with a big, thick notebook full of songs. And What kind of guy was he? A friendly guy, you know, very just like he is, very happy, joke, joking, making a lot of jokes, and uh, kind of unassuming, kind of a little, a little like Otis was. Uh, but basically, uh, Bill's Bill's mentality is that of a carpenter. He's you know he's always looking to build something. He's always doing something in some of his kids' houses or changing something in the apartment, and, and secondarily as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. That's and- the kind of person he is. When we walked into the studio, he he uh, asked me. I had everything like the setup. I had drums, bass, brought people out from Memphis and ready to record the songs. And he says, who's going to sing these songs? And he, <laughs> he just wanted to be a songwriter, not yeah, a performer? Yeah, he saw, he saw himself as a songwriter and a carpenter and saw it as a side project. Uh-huh. And what was the first song he sang? Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. So how long, did, had, it, how long did it take you to say, oh, I think you're really good? I never said that. but i did i know that now um in that book he had songs i I didn't get the best well i got some great ones but i didn't get lean on me i didn't get uh, he had all those in the book uh yeah mm -hmm. and then you produced one of the biggest albums of i think all time which is willie nelson stardust Mm -hmm. how did that come about that was when i was living in malibu i had an apartment and willie had rented the apartment underneath me, which I had thought was empty because I never saw anybody down there. Uh, but one day I saw him running up the beach, a red-headed guy that looks just like Willie Nelson. Of course, it was Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. He did, waved because he's a, just a friendly guy. Did you know his work by that point? Oh, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew his red-headed stranger and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was so surprised when he turned in and came into the gate to, to my unit. And, uh, and uh, he saw me. I stayed out there, and we realized that we were neighbors, and that's when we started jamming at mm-hmm. night he'd come up to my deck because i had an electric piano right by the window and we jammed there and the songs we jammed on uh just messing around with each other were the ones that ended up on the stardust album mm-hmm. and then you i mean you did you played bass on for bob dylan for knocking on heaven's door mm-hmm. yeah i was a bass player that was my first real gig in memphis that was how i got most of my gigs was on bass mm-hmm but you 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 said earlier you still regard yourself as a guitar player. I did, yeah. I still, yeah. I have I have guitars all over the house and all over my studio. So that's the first thing you kind of think of when you're when you're writing. That's it. I I had a Sears Silvertone. That's me playing a Sears Silvertone on William Bell's "Forgot to Be Your Lover." Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You also wrote a great guitar lick, which I don't think enough people know about, which is the opening to. Eddie Floyd's is it Big, Big Bird. Big, Big Bird, yeah. That was yeah. a fabulous lick. And oh, I, you you sort of hint in the book that like the guitarists were, why don't you stick to the organ? Like they didn't they didn't want the competition. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But that's me on the silver tone, yeah, playing that. That was bass. a Sears guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And then you ended up working with Neil Young, mm-hmm. uh, Sinead O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Drive by truckers. You drive mm-hmm. by truckers. Mm-hmm. You did a um uh, you did a, you redid a Jackie Wilson song that became a big hit for Rita Coolidge, for Rita Coolidge who mm-hmm. was your sister-in-law at, the point, mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, but you ch- totally changed that song, and it became a big, big hit. Yeah, yeah. I had worked with Jackie Robinson, uh, Jackie at the Regal Theater in Chicago. Oh, what an entertainer. He was dynamic. And the, mm-hmm. that, that song just, but, but I often sometimes hear a song and a, and a, a new, a different arrangement will come to me. Mm-hmm. That's what that was. I had recorded that on myself, and Rita heard it, and and, uh, and took we, it. We did yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you've got a new album, which is called Time. Well, it's not called Time is Tight, but it, it's, it's an, note a, by note. And it's a companion to. To um, the book, yeah. And what inspired you to do that? Well, the chapters are the same as the chapters, the chapter titles of the book. The songs on the note by note uh, are Because uh, I Love You, which is the first chapter of the book. And it's the first song I ever played on in the studio, played baritone mm-hmm. sax on that in the first chapter. So it's the first and the last. 
Uh, we, we made a new recording of, of Cause I Love You with Evie McKinney from the Stax Museum. You know, they have some great talent there, at the, mm-hmm. this young talent at the Stax Museum, and uh, Joshua Ledette. Ledette. And, uh, you know, some of the American Idol winners and some of the, talk, the, the new uh, voice winners. Uh, and uh, Ty Taylor is on it singing uh, These Arms of Mine. And my son, Ted, uh, who is my new uh, accomplice, is, has two two songs on there. He's a... Mm-hmm. He's he's my go-to guitarist now and 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 songwriter and um, yeah it's it's um, it's a composite of of of, uh, of of a lot of the chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there more new stuff? Are there people you want to work with now? Oh yeah, there's a new album uh, coming with Ted Teddy Jones, my son. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like uh, well, every song's different, but uh, on the new album, note by note, there's. Um, Maybe I need saving that we wrote together, and then there's paralyzed. That's getting a lot of good airplay now that we mm-hmm. wrote together. And uh, there's a there's a uh, Matt Berninger of the National sent me 20 songs a few months ago, and I, we've recorded that. And I'm really excited about that. A new album for him called um, Serpentine Prison, mm-hmm. and he's which a, is out now, isn't it? I think. No, it's not out yet. No, okay. So we just finished the production on it, we, uh, but uh, he's he's just done a lot of work and. Uh, written some really great music, and he's the one that I I worked with uh, on representing Memphis here in New York with the Roots with Sharon Jones. They they did that duet together. Right, that's where we met uh, a good while ago, and we become friends. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this in the book. You know, people expect to hear Green Onions, and they expect to hear the hits when you see them. And I don't know what it's like for you to play them, but there is a great story about uh, President Obama when you met him. Can oh, you just tell yeah. that? Yeah, we were doing. Uh, uh, a special at the White House, and, and the president was um, at the back of the house waiting to walk in. And usually, uh, bands are expected to play "Hail to the Chief," and uh, I happened to be playing "Green Onions." And he and uh, his wife, uh, he and the first lady, started walking in. Well, actually, kind of bopping in to uh, "Green Onions," and that got filmed. That got on tape, and uh, he expressed a preference for uh, whenever I was around to walking into "Green Onions" rather, Green onions. rather than "Hail to the Chief." That is beautiful. Yeah, I love that song. Booker T's memoir is out now. And be sure to check out BookerT.com to see when you can catch him and his band on the road. You can check out some more of his music by visiting BrokenRecordPodcast.com where we have a playlist available for you to listen to. And while you're there, sign up for a behind-the-scenes newsletter. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, and Leah Rose for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music is by Kenny Beats. Stay tuned for next week's episode with Richard Russell of XL Recordings. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. 